We just interviewed the CMO of a $121 million business, sold 8 million of his own stuff. He took a 10,000 person email list and made 10 million with it. And around the end of the podcast, he goes and questions me and he goes, but JK likes our cash. Likes ain't cash. Likes our cash. <laughs> I thought it was a really cool episode. I learned a lot, took a ton of notes. Hopefully you enjoy it too. Let's roll. Hi friends, we're live. Welcome to the Lexington Cash Podcast. So today we got our first, uh, I told Marcus we're not gonna call it threesome, but we got our first threesome. We got Marcus, <laughs> James, Mr. James Kemp. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a little intro because people are kind of really humble when they introduce themselves. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna introduce yourself and we're gonna go into a little bit of one of the, some of the things I thought were most interesting about you. So. James right here, former CMO of $121 million online bids. Sold 8 million of his own stuff. Marketing systems sold 100 million of other people's stuff. Uh, did I miss anything, James? Is that it? None. That's it. Ah, uh, cool. Gotta get well, numbers in first, right? Yeah, I mean. Make it better. Yeah, that, that's how we do it. Dude, I, I really like your content because I think that you approach things in a very... I call it a so sober way. Like when you explain things, I feel like they're very different from what I've heard before, but they all make sense. And I really liked it. I like to start with one of the most requested ones from the, from the comments. I saw you posted this on Facebook. It said, there's a story about, and I had to double check this was right, by the way, $10 million with the 10,000 people list. It, are, are those numbers right? Yeah, right. Hi, how'd, how'd you do that, man? You walk us through the story. I want to hear that. The, the 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 central the central thing. I'm I'm a dork, like right. I go I I go back to you know the first principles and 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 work from there. And um, I'm also old, so I've you know done a bit of stuff. And in everything I've done, I noticed powerless. You know when when um when I see him over for Grabon, which was a, a Groupon clone in New Zealand. You know, I noticed that you had 1% of the people buying 99% of the stuff. You know, 99% of the people buying 1% of the stuff. And then if we look at an audience as a group of individuals, we can appreciate that there's out of 10,000 person audience, there might be 9,000 people who don't buy a single thing from us. But there's 1,000 people who will. And in that 1,000 people, you might have someone who's going to give you a million dollars, right? But the other, you know, 999 can also give you a million dollars as well. So when you, when you start to understand power laws and, and you start to see them everywhere, when you look at these concepts that people throw out like audiences and these ideas, you realize that there's humans inside it, but all humans, their spending and their lifetime value isn't created equal. So one of the things I've just got really good at is looking at, across an audience and creating offers that tap the biggest amount of value. You know, 75% of people are going to spend nothing to 100 bucks with you. 25% are going to spend you know, 25 to five grand. And then, then you're finding the two to, to 5% who are going to spend multiples of that. So as soon as you tap power laws, you can get large, large amounts of income out of very small audiences because power laws are relative whether you got a hundred people, a thousand, 10,000 or a million. If you tap the, if you tap the power laws, you'll always have some, a way to maximize the amount of yield that you get up. So. Like, look at tactical here. How, how'd you get the, how'd you make the 10 mil? Yeah. 
make lots of offers. Yeah, but like you so, did you you start hey, the small one. The, okay, the, the 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 common the common the common internet marketing advice that I followed um three times. Build one program and consistently stick to it. Right? So um met a young dude called Sam Ovens when I was leaving my um leaving my consulting gig and he said why don't you build an online an online program? And I did. And I focused on that. And 13 months later, it just did, did over a million dollars in sales. But in the, in the meantime, I built up this huge list of people who hadn't bought it, right? So what I did is I started to make offers to those people. I made smaller offers and big ones. So my, pro, my very first program was $4,500. And then I started selling $45 workshops and $200 implementation packs. But I also sold $45,000 done for you implementation of e-commerce principles at the time to businesses, you know, via an agency and services piece. And one of the things that's gone wrong in the online industry is everybody's tried to have an identity. I'm a coach. I'm a consultant. I'm a agency. Whereas those are only things of modalities or any things that people do. So if you can wear all the hats of a coach, a consultant, a service provider, a mentor, a creator, or and even a curator, then you can tap the biggest number of uh, the biggest piece of the audience. So people don't make enough offers at the end of the day. Um, I just got off a, a call with a group of clients. You know, my 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 client sells an eighteen thousand dollar, you know, um, year long implementation program, but he's also made a hundred dollar offer, and you know, fifty or sixty people are going to buy it by the end of tomorrow, and fifty of those and fifty or sixty people get on a call with him that's part of the hundred dollar offer that he can pitch his $18,000 offer with. And he gets 100% sharp rate for his calls, whereas most coaches are struggling to get 60%. So at the end of the day, it comes down to making more offers, making small offers, making big offers, and understanding that the rejection of that offer doesn't actually matter. You're just trying to find the buyers inside your inside your audience. What I like about the video... Well, when you go on that... Because... Go, 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 Marcus, go. When you go on that ladder, right, you're making do-it-yourself offers, done-with-you offers, done-for-you offers, and you're kind of, is it is it more of an ascension model where those lower-ticket offers provide ascension into the next phase or an ascension into your higher-ticket offers? Are you preparing the lower-ticket buyers for higher-ticket services? It is, but ascension is a myth, right? It's that there's this myth that a thousand people buy your cheap thing, and then a hundred people buy your less cheap thing, and then ten people buy your really expensive thing in some like neat, orderly list. The reality is that you're just trying to understand intent at each at each stage. So if you have multiple offers at each stage that are easy to fulfill on, and in the case of agency and, and done for you services, you don't even have to fulfill them yourselves. You can just put a consulting wrapper around something that somebody else fulfills. Then ascension happens naturally. Because if you if you have enough volume in those offers, then people will naturally ascend. Uh, case in point, I did a hundred dollar offer uh, three weeks ago. Uh, one hundred and sixty people bought it at a hundred dollars. At thirteen people ascended into my membership and community, um, which is a thousand bucks a month. So, but I'd be foolish to say that I'm I've got I'm going to get a eight to nine percent conversion rate on every single hundred dollar offer because it's not that linear and predictable. I just tapped a pocket of the buyers. The next one I do, I might get 20, but also the next one I do, I might get one. So it, Ascension is a byproduct, but it can't be manufactured in the way that people say it can with some neat, this happens, then this happens, and this happens. 
um, because timing and the offers um, are the variable. I got that email for that community you sent out, the $1,000 a month. But what's interesting to me about it, it's you charge two fifty dollars a week, right? Yeah. Well, what's the, what's the reasoning behind the weekly pricing versus the monthly pricing? The weekly pricing, been testing it for years, and it's consistently performed better than monthly pricing. Um, and the primary reason is that it, it talks to the, the money that people have now. Uh, most people make purchasing decisions on what they have currently available because they're pretty terrible at extrapolating out the future. So they're not quite sure what's going to happen next. So they largely spend on what's currently available and then put, you know, hope and, you know, um, and, and then achievement on top of that. So weekly pricing, weekly pricing is the lowest possible now number that you can put, a, put in front of somebody. But there's also some tricks. Well, I, I, there's, some, there's some tricks behind it because the biggest thing that happens is that you get more pay in fulls when you offer a discount on the other side of it. So one, one major thing I do is I put weekly pricing in um, to give the lowest possible now number so you can get started for 250 bucks. But when someone gets on the other side, they are they are given a one or two or three thousand dollar discount to pay in full. So the very first offer I did with with weekly pricing, that was a hundred dollars a week for fifteen weeks. It was called the 10K Go to help people make 10K online. A hundred dollars a week for fifteen weeks. I didn't tell anyone, but when they got to the cart, they could pay in full for a thousand dollars, and they had eighty three percent pay in full rate. So. Even though I didn't offer a pay in full on the front end, which is what everybody is taught, um, by offering the lowest possible now number, which is 100 bucks to get started today, all you are asking is someone to get started, but then they can save another now figure, which is 500 bucks. So the 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 consumer of the or the purchaser is highly motivated by what is happening now. 100 bucks to get started. Oh, wicked! I save 500 bucks um, on this because I've got a thousand dollars right here. And the funny thing is that people who have the I can't afford it objection are often the ones who take the pay in full of the, of, and the saving and the discount option because they um, because they actually had the money in the first place and they had access to it. How did this come to be? Like, did you just like got sick of sales calls and you didn't want to do them? Like, did somebody teach this to you? Did you come up with them? This is this this is fascinating to me. I haven't heard about. Yeah, so there's a there's a there's an OG there's an OG wonderful man um, down in the in the southern USA called Travis Sager, and Travis kind of Travis was I'm going to give him credit to be the OG of sell by chat. You know, he invented it when people were selling off literally, you know, Notepad. You know, before we had fancy Google Docs and Notion and all this shit that we've got now, he would send Notepad files to people with an offer in it. And Travis taught me like two major things that that pricing was a major mechanism and an offer. And also that the, the offer could be dynamic. That when we're on sales calls, and I've done 1,500 of them, so I got plenty of experience, that we change the pitch based on what is in front of us. But you can also do that with written offers because you can change it based on the feedback of the marketplace. So Travis taught me the fundamental principles behind selling by chat, by creating offers, and, and you know selling asymmetrically. And I just took the knowledge that I had from sales calls and then mapped those processes over, and then in the way that I do start experimenting with different pieces. Um, I'm a, I can be an unemotional dork in the sense of I'm just, all I care about is the data and the human on the other side of it. And so I don't get attached to this 
oh, these customers are like this and people who pay low ticket are like this. It's what performs, what happens, and what is what is the response. So I started experimenting with weekly pricing and then under, then started to understand the psychology behind it on the now numbers. Um, and all the myths that are around it got blown out. You know, I've got a, I've got a client who, who ran a 25 week, a hundred dollar a week, um, piece on a 500 person cobalt. And they only had four people not complete the pay plan. And their team were convinced that they were shitty tire kicker buyers who only had a hundred dollars to their name and 496 of them proved them wrong. So I, I think there's a lot of, um, perceived wisdom in this and in, in these communities and these ideas that is just taken as canon and gospel and most of it's bullshit because when you actually look at the data behind a lot of offers and a lot of experimentation and innovation um then there's some very interesting things happening when the true numbers are played out over over big what are some things you consider like bullshit that some people would be like disagree with you on that Oh, lead nurture is the biggest one. This idea that marketers think they're fucking magicians, right? That they can implant implant thoughts in someone's head. That there's that they've got mind control tricks. The job of a marketer is to is to tap into desire and then point out liabilities in somebody's life that they can turn into assets. That's all. Right? So but one of the biggest myths of lead nurture is that if I talk to this person long enough, that I can somehow change their beliefs. And that, I've never seen that to be the case over any time period. You've got survivor bias where people go, I changed this person's belief and then they bought. And I get it. You can look at isolated. There's the testimonials now. The testimonials. And you're a magician. Yeah, exactly. But the reality is that people have desire. If you point at things that you can turn into their, that you can turn into assets in their life, that they have a desire to put the work into and do, then they can actually see with their eyes, this thing, this skill, this audience, this service, I can actually turn into something that I want because I want to make more money. I want to live remotely. I want to lose weight. I want to, whatever it is, the desire is already there. So lead nurturing is this idea that we can somehow implant the beliefs when really all we need to do is point at the things in their life they don't like and, and they've become intolerant of and point at what can happen with on the other side and then make them an offer that bridges that gap. I want to I wanna backtrack because you said something that, uh, you know, people have these implicit thoughts that, that maybe their audience are freebie seeking or they think that there's the different types of audiences. Um, I'm curious what you thought of the Hormozy concert Fortnite event weekly webinar thing that that blew up right i heard you said a newsletter on it um i don't know if you saw right but when he was announcing the price and people thought he was that he was going to sell the course the entire chat was blowing up with negative comments essentially going scammer he had pyramid scheme. yeah hammer scheme whatever he's put out so much goodwill non-stop to his audience and the one time he asked for something people were calling him a scammer and then when he switched to okay it's actually free everybody's oh my gosh you're the goat you're the best I'm curious what you think of that. Like, is there um, is there too much giving at some point when you can create an audience like that, or do you think maybe that's a way he went about it, creating an audience that's that's freebie seeking? It's difficult because he's a complete outlier. But the interesting thing for me is that he is 
he is demonstrating a philosophy and a way of living and then teaching people to do something else, right? The teaching that the teaching that Alex does is very, very fundamental, very tactical, and very, very much based on real fundamentals. And he's the goat of doing the basics really well consistently over the long period of time. But the things that he does and turns up as is, is purely himself. And that's what makes him an attractive character. You know, from the image, from the beard and the wife beater with the shirt over the top and, you know, the um, the hundred million piece, you know, you see the seed of the hundred million dollar man in every podcast title and every piece. He's, he's embedded an image, which we call a brand, in people's heads. And he's done an amazing job of doing that and then raising the bar. But the irony is the things he's teaching aren't the things he's doing. So people have to be careful when they take tactics, purely tactics, and work up from there. Because if they're not based on a philosophy like Alex is basing his on a philosophy, then you can grow yourself into a corner that you might not necessarily want. You put out an email that I thought was really... It was, it was what I was thinking, but you put it in... What I, I liked that a lot. It was the worst event of the year. That was the subject line, right? Because... Uh, well, that was the subject line, right? The That's one. a marketer of me. I couldn't help it. I had to. I had to. I had to be contrarian <laughs> to get people to read the email. Right? I'm a. I'm a. I'm a let you talk about. It. I don't want to ruin it. But what was in that email? Because it was really cool. Yeah, it, it, it fundamentally talks about the philosophy. Um, that the you know I've been I've been selling advice and information and coaching and consulting for a decade, right? You know, and I I followed lots of different mentors. And every time I followed a mentor, I just, I was successful because I took and implemented everything they taught me down to the letter and down to the T and I made money. But along the way, I lost myself. I became like poor imitations of Sam Ovens, of Scott Oldford, of Kevin Nations, you know, and I've worked with some amazing people, but I, I took on them, their business model, their beliefs, and, and everything, and I didn't base it on my own philosophy. And I see so many people become successful and making money because as annoying as it sounds, it's really fucking easy if you have a good offer and you, and you can deliver value to make money on the internet these days. But they, they grow themselves into a place that's not them. So they become this poor imitation of their mentor. They become a poor imitation of an internet marketer they become a poor imitation along the way they lose themselves. So my encouragement to people is that there are ways that you can follow the template, but understand that along the way you need to, you need to become your own person. You need to become, you need to understand what is valuable to you. Like I love Twitter. I love following you, you young bucks and all your advice, but as a 43 year old man with, with a 12 and a six year old and a, and a single dad, then if I followed all the advice that, that everybody gave me on money Twitter, um, I'd, you know, I'd probably be a broke alcoholic because I wouldn't know which way was up and which way was down. <laughs> but so it's about the discernment of, you know, am I, am I taking a system? Am I taking the principles of something and then applying it to applying it to my business and my life? Or am I just copying this thing wholesale to get to a goal? And you know what? Sometimes there's nothing wrong with it. If you want to make a million dollars, then you should just do everything that JK says. You should join his program. You should follow everything to the letter. You should do all the all the thing. If you don't, if you don't, if you if that's all your primary goal and that's your primary focus, and you want to be in the season of that for six or twelve months, 
and the, and you've decided that that's the thing, do that. But understand that when you get to that million dollar mark, when you get to that that high rate, you've got to find yourself, and that might that might involve some unwinding some of the things that 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 your mentor gave you or your coach gave you, uh, and finding discernment and, and 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 using the strategies and things that are, that are natural to you. When I was in, in college, I was kind of like obsessed to learn pickup, right? So I, learned, I read, started reading like The Game by Neil Strauss and uh, The Mystery Method, the book of, you know, the classics, right? So I'm reading these books and I'd always try to look at the phrases that we're telling the girls and then say it. And I would say them, but they wouldn't work. And I got super pissed because they wouldn't work. And that's kind of when I, I thought about that example when you were talking about when people give you advice, there's always the strategy of the advice and there's always the tactic of the advice. The strategy is understanding why and in which context something will work. The tactic is just the example they give you. It's what you copy and paste. It's the easy part. And when you copy the tactics, I find that it works in a very specific situation. Like if all the factors are not there, it doesn't work. Whereas if you learn the fundamentals, then it works for a wider array of situations, which is kind of what I thought you were pointing out towards that event, the, the worst event of the year, which, by the way, you did say it was a great event. And Alex is, is great. By the way, we're not shitting on Alex at, at any point because you did say that. We know. But um, but um, yeah, can I can I I'll give an yeah, example go. of like a lesson not learned. Right. You know, I followed Russell Brunson's perfect webinar probably six times. Right. Six different web, you know. Da, 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 three secrets, build up, value, value ladder, da, 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 da. and each time it worked, but I fucking hated it. <clears throat> it just felt so not me, right? And then I was like, okay, well, what am I? I'm, I'm just a teacher, like I'm an open book, I'm a teacher. I, I, I share lessons with people by demonstration. I do stuff and then I demonstrate it to people and they take value from it. So the next webinar I did, I made the pitch at the beginning and said, I'm going to make you an offer at the end. Here's a link to the offer. Have a read of it because it's all weird and tension when you know I'm going to make an offer at the end and I just want to get on with showing you cool shit. Is that okay? And then at the end, I, showed, I talked about the offer again and I sold twice as much as the last perfect webinar that I did because it was natural to me. Because all I wanted to do was eliminate the attention, spend an hour teaching cool shit, and if people liked it, they knew what to do because there was an offer at the beginning and the end. So it's, I, I do believe you need to follow some of the strategies and tactics to know they're not for you, and it's more important to do them in the first place, but you need to pull back from things. And it, it frustrates me when I see people trying to run a VSL or start a Facebook group you know, people start a Facebook group and they hate being on Facebook. People run a VSL, a 20-minute VSL on a webinar and they barely can speak. Um, people do, you know, video marketing, but they definitely shouldn't be on video because someone told them to and they pursue that strategy endlessly for years sometimes and then just can't work out why they're not getting the results. So you've got to do the thing, apply discernment to it and say, is this for me? And then modify it as you go along to work out what that is for, for you. I thought that was beautiful. I thought it was great. Marcus, you got a question on that? No, I don't. Wanted to change it up here. Uh, I'm curious. 
what is this uh when when you think of a category of one right and you said a lot of you don't want to replicate others and that you kind of fell into that trap and i think of like a lot of these enigmas you mentioned hormozy with the tank top and the and the hat and the beard uh back in the day you know ty lopez he he i had a conversation with him and he said you know the lambo marketing right it's all it's part of the show right it's i call it a effective theatrics even sam ovens you know he put on the blue suit and went to a new york high rise but you having met him, he's nothing like that, right? He's not, he's not like a New York billionaire's real kind of guy. Um, how, do you, how do you try and build that category of one? Or how do you teach people to build that category of one where they can be themselves while still, being, while still doing the marketing? Because at a certain point, you still, want to have, you still want to draw in people, but you want to be yourself at the same time. And not everybody is perhaps fancy. Or yeah, interesting. They're, they're... Or interesting. <laughs> They're, they're not interesting, but the ideas might be interesting. Exactly. You know, I, I, I meet a lot of uninteresting people that have very interesting ideas because they've done stuff, right? So becoming a category of one is this, the, the antithesis of niching. And sorry, for your audience, niching. The fastest <laughs> way to grow, the fastest way to grow a coaching or consulting business online is choose a niche. And the reason is, is because you have an identifiable market with an identifiable problem you solve. But the trade-off is that you have to stick to that niche and stick to that, and, and people often feel constrained once they reach a certain uh, threshold of income. They re- they get bored, and they tend to sabotage it through boredom. The slowest way to grow is become a category of one, because that is distilling, distilling down your ideas, being the only place to go for those ideas, and being accessible only to a certain group of people who resonate with those ideas. So becoming category of one is exposing your ideas to the world and being confident that they generate results. I show, I demonstrate my results by doing what I teach and demonstrating that along the way. You won't see a ton of testimonials or third-party endorsements from me because I am the testimonial. If you like these things, if you like the life I live, if you like the results I generate for myself, then you're probably going to like my stuff. And that, that's what being a category of one is. It's much closer to being a, a creator of ideas and being the only source of those than being the master of a niche and, you know, and, 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 and taking people up the hierarchy. Because both work, but one takes a little bit, a little bit longer to get traction than the other. I saw a post of yours saying, if you're a coach selling freedom, it doesn't make sense for you to create all your content in a room. They have to go out, go to the beach, live life. I, I thought that post was really good. I like that. I want to switch gears a little well, bit too. I think people, you, people, okay, people have, go, people go have talked that, about authenticity. People have talked about authenticity, right? And authenticity is now a tactic, which is like, I'm going to be so authentic because I'm going to tell stories of me crying alone in my toilet because I didn't make, you know, a million dollars last year. But authenticity is just actually exposing your values to people in a way that, that, that people align with. And also, authenticity is also choosing definitions of, the, of, of words like success, like freedom, like values and the constraints around them. So true authenticity is just being who you really are. And that's the hardest job, finding that and, and discerning what you, what you like, who you are, and your unique pieces with that. Because when you have true authenticity, people are attracted to it or they're not. Because 
that's when haters come along because they don't agree with your lifestyle, they don't agree with your choices. But true authenticity should develop that polarity. You have very, very strong fans who want to be close to you, and then you have people who despise you. When you talk about freedom, one of the posts that, like, that you posted, and I like kind of your, your take on this, it, it was a sentence that said, what if growing your business, uh, have you considered if growing your business is the wrong move? At what point were you like, yeah, maybe growing my business is the wrong move? And how do you recommend people think about that? The growing my business was the wrong move when I realized that more money didn't solve the personal issues. That I could grow my bank account, but unless I grow alongside it, then it would be the money would be a dangerous amplifier. But um, most people you know, never for, get there, though. Most people are like, let's just make more. How did you, where, where you're like, oh, maybe, <laughs> yes, you know, it's like people are like, they buy a... I got rich. I'm not, I'm not there. I yet. got rich. Like, I got yeah, rich first did, to work, to like, work oh, out what, that... At what point where you're like, oh, maybe I don't need to buy a fucking sports team. You know what I mean? Yeah. When, when, the, when I saw the numbers in the bank account going up and my happiness going down, when I saw the... The fact that I could buy $50 bottles of wine rather than $5 bottles of wine meant that I drank two of the $50 ones rather than the $5 one. When I got fatter around my waist rather than my bank account. When I woke up with a perpetual sense of anxiety because I'd made promises and commitments to people that I didn't think I could keep. So for me, it was like, it was an education by doing. And the thing that strikes me now is that in an exponential kind of knowledge economy, we can grow our businesses faster than we can grow ourselves. We can grow our bank balance, we can get money faster than we can evolve and change our identity into the person who can steward that and shepherd it and do good things with it. So I see a lot of people get rich by thinking from the, from the, the chin up, from the neck up, um, by applying smart strategies and then get stuck in a place because they've, they haven't dealt with themselves, they haven't dealt with who they are and what they want, and they get stuck there. I think you have to do it first, though. You know, I'm talking about philosophy and these pieces because I work with people who are generally down the track. They've done something, they've created something, they've built things, and they've started to have discernment that more money, more clients, you know, more influence, more authority isn't making them feel fulfilled. So I become a business artist because I, re, I help them redesign the business so they can have all those things, but also have an underlying life that the business feeds. And I think, I believe that if you're at the beginning, you just need to follow a script and do that until you've earned the right not to. Until you need to follow the, the, the specific path and find it a few different ones as you go along to follow that path, to find the way that you do it. Because I wouldn't believe the things I believe unless I'd gone through the pain of success. I wouldn't believe the things I believe and have my own philosophy unless I'd followed someone else's path and built the success that I did. So I earned the right to actually have discernment about what I didn't do. So when you're at the beginning, you need to choose a path, stick to it, follow it, and then course correct along the way. Once you've reached some level of comfort, and you've had, you, you can start to define what enough is, 
then you can start to understand that you have a philosophy and look back and discernment and say, why were the things hard? What do I not want to do anymore? And essentially get paid to exist. Because that's what I do. I get paid to exist. I, I ran a retreat last week and I invite clients over to my house because I like my house and it's really comfortable and I have staff and I can get a caterer and we sit around and talk. I don't want to rent a villa and have a stage and those things because it's a pain in the ass and it costs money and I have to drive somewhere and I can't be bothered. So I create an environment that I'm comfortable in where I do my best work and then I invite people into it. And I've earned the right to do that because I've gone through the pain of building things and following the systems and, and you know ticking the boxes to work out which ones that I which rules I need to follow and which rules I need to break. What you were saying reminded me of a Picasso quote. It's learn the rules like a pro so you can break them like an artist. I get to a certain point and then you can, you can break the rules. One place where I want to get tactical on what you said is, well, when you were getting butter around the waist, then instead of your bank account, when you were not training, you know, in a good way because you were anxious, what was that number for you out of which you said, maybe this is, not enough, but this is the level at which I can make other decisions. I can focus on something else other than money. Yeah, when I when I first joined um, Sam's Sam Ovens program way back when, there were three dozen of us there at the beginning, and um, I saw a chap called Andrew argue, and Andrew was um, working. I believe he was he was working with like CPAs, um, you know, and accountants in, in the US, and Andrew had gone from a CPA into in a program. And I saw him make $100,000 a month, six figures a month. And I was like, fuck me, that's, the, that's kind of the benchmark. And so I, I went for that number. I, I was like, when I get there, I will have all the choices and all the options in the world, right? And so for me, it was that, that run rate of being able to make 100K a month and then kind of stopping and I stopped there for quite a while. Like my, I went from an e-commerce program to a program called Authority Architecture. And Authority Architecture pretty much had the same run rate as there. I was always around 100K a month until three years later, I decided to put the pedal down and, and you know, really see what I had capacity in, in doing in terms of the upper, upper piece. And so for me, it was choosing what is enough. And I'm going through that with a number of clients at the moment who have come out of things where they were fixated on someone else's goal. And it's important not to be fixated on my goal. And I've got a client right now I'm working with who's trying to get to 40K a month and he feels guilty about it. He feels guilty that he's not going for six figures a month because every time he opens up Facebook or Twitter or anything like that, that's the way you've got to go. So you've got to decide what, what enough is and what the constraints are and what the trade-offs you're prepared to make. And uh, once you once you choose your enough number, then you just you should just go for it. I'm I'm curious about your your path. You said you know you wanted to essentially you get success first. Uh, what does a path look like to become a CMO of a hundred million dollar company? And where was the shift where it's like okay, I'm going to go off on my own and and go and start doing doing my own thing? How did you how did you actually get there? Maybe if it's like a story from the beginning up to a CMO, as a, guy, as a guy who got a marketing degree, didn't actually get a job and then started an agency. <laughs> yeah, so when I, when I was in my teens and early 20s, I had lots of sales jobs. So I had lots of blue chip sales jobs, so like Vodafone, Xerox and, and BMW when I first went to London. Um, I thought I needed a profession because I, I dropped out of university three times. So I became a financial advisor and I started working for a bank 
and realized that banks were a really good business. So I started a small finance company where I'd sell, um, I'd sell low-ticket products to people um, door-to-door and then flip those products onto pay plans into finance companies. So essentially I was lead gener- doing lead gen and I got a consumer credit license in the UK and did lead gen for finance companies and sold them products. Um, then I found the internet and started self-building WordPress um, sites and also um, self-taught SEO and, um, and Google PPC. So I started generating leads for those um, for those guys. And in 2008, all my customers went out of business and let, left me holding the bag. So um, I had a brand new baby. I was sitting in London with 70 grand worth of debt because uh, all my customers didn't pay for my ads bill that I'd just spent over the last few months and reached out to the um, to the head of country for a startup called Living Social. So that Living Social were in the early days of Daily Deals and, and Groupon. So I was employee about number eight there in London and they grew to 350 people. I just moved up the ranks by being inside a high growth startup, uh, went back to New Zealand, um, helped start their selling their travel piece on you know daily deals, selling travel and higher ticket stuff was becoming a thing. Um, became marketing manager and then marketing director um, in the space of about nine months. So everything I've done has been like inside. You know I didn't. I dropped out of university stupidly three times. Didn't learn my lesson. I spent two years doing a degree that I dropped out of. You know a few months before it finished. I just couldn't 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 stick it. Couldn't. It's been the 80-20 of doing a really fucking good job at the thing I was doing, selling lots of stuff, creating, but also spending 20% of the time innovating as well. You know, so I, I turned a marketing department and in, into a profit center where they were spending they were spending 20 million dollars, and I turned it into a three million dollar profit because I sold eyeballs, I sold excess inventory. I, I bought movie tickets wholesale and sold 50,000 of those because I could buy them for $8 and then sell them to our customers for 12 as like a secret deal when someone bought something. I sold advertising inventory inside the shopping cart because it was the most expensive advertising inventory in the country because I said, I've got buyers. I know they're buyers because they're in my shopping cart and there's 40 to 50,000 of them a day. So I got CPMs that made people's eyes water because I, was, I could get people's ads in front of buyers. So I've always been really, really good at commercialising things and, and, and turning liabilities into assets. Um, and that's that's what I want to talk to you about. Likes ain't cash. Likes are cash. That's right. <laughs> uh, let's talk about this. Are likes cash, James? <clears throat> In people's minds, they are. Because the, the number one blocker that people have is that I need an audience to sell something. I need an audience to be rich, right? So for me, I'm always looking for the liabilities we can turn into assets. So I'd love to I'd love to see you offer to people to turn likes into cash. Because if you've got likes, if you've got an audience, you're really good at turning it into cash, right? Yeah. Likes and cash came from people talk like it's meant for small accounts, it's actually meant for big accounts. It's actually meant because yeah. when that's why we only take people who have a certain follower count, because it's just kind of the mindset shift you need to go through. And by the way, like when you talk about you can't change people's minds, it really resonated because it's it's hard. But uh, it came from talking to big accounts and showing them how to turn the likes into cash. It was never meant for for people who didn't have small we didn't have big followers, but that's the people who adopted it mostly. But uh, likes can be cash, right? Of course, it's easier to monetize a big artist. It's just uh, 
I kind of like the controversy surrounding it, especially now with Twitter payouts. People say likes are now cash. And it, I, I just like the sound of it. I like the controversy. And I think it can't hurt me to have the brand. Because I do believe priorities are wrong. Like you posted somewhere. If, like, you shouldn't be worried about why, what happens if I burn out my audience? What happens if, like, they just hate me forever? And that's like a common belief that people with big accounts have. And it's kind of not true. But it won't happen to you until you learn that, like, ain't cash. It's meant for bigger accounts, not for smaller accounts. But what's big and small? It's all relative, right? Yeah, let's call it's usually 10K plus and above. It's because of my story. Because at 10K, I thought I wanted, when I was below 10K, I wanted to get to 10. And I got to 10K, I, th I said, I'm gonna monetize at 50. And then 50, I was monetized at 70, right? So for me, it's at 10K, it's kind of when you start getting into that treadmill of, I gotta get more, I gotta get more, I gotta get more. You know, it's like, it's, it's never enough because you get the little K right next to your symbol on Twitter and it never changes until you get to a million. So for me, it's 10. <laughs> So how, how, how much could you help, how much could you help someone make who had a 10K, like good quality engaged audience on Twitter, on Instagram? How much could you what? How much could you make? How much could you help them make? Like a good offer, help them make a good offer, help them with cold outreach, help them, you know, educate and monetize their audience without growing. I'd say at least like, because what I like about that market is that they don't, it, it has a lot of potential energy. So if you get them $1 per follower per month, that's a lot for them. So $1 per follower yeah. per month. If you're at 10K, 10K a month, 20, 20K a month. That's a lot for them already. Yeah. But to many of those people, that's like a magic trick. Because they're not making anything out of it at the moment. Right. And I think it goes much higher than that much higher than $1 per follower. Like you can make a hundred K a month. You can make much more off of 10 K followers. Just oh, you definitely, you definitely can, but yeah. small promises are easy to keep, right? hundred percent. 10 K for 10 K is a very, very elegant, um, a very elegant promise because the, the, the thing with offer creation is you got to point at something, right? And if you point at something that somebody has, and that is some, some currently something that's stressing them out or that the, what I call a liability and you show them how to turn that into an asset, then that is the ultimate reliever. And the, the annoyance or the irritation of someone having a 10K audience and they're not monetizing it is a liability. Yeah. So if you point at the fact that you can turn 10K into 10K and you show them how to do it, that is turning this current liability into an asset. Yeah. Right. There is no there is no there is no ceiling to that. You could do you could turn ten k into a million, you know, with the right offer and the right position in the right position in the market. It's all relative, but ten k for ten k uh, might be a nice little offer to make in the in the next little while. Well, speaking I like of I like uh, the name too. Speaking of offers, someone who's been kind of in the consulting, call it education, info space for a decade. How have you seen the offers kind of evolving as the market evolves? Because something I've noticed is seeing 
different kinds of offers pop up, kind of combo offers, offers that have maybe a done-for-you portion, a do-it-yourself portion, and a done-with-you portion, all combined kind of into one package deal. And there seems to be much more sophistication on the different types of things. You're seeing people mix it with physical books and all sorts of stuff. How have you seen that evolution? Have you implemented anything like that for yourself or your clients? Yeah, largely, um, I think the, the biggest evolution is offers got bigger. So the promises got bigger, the deliverables got bigger, and then the sales got smaller. <laughs> so, <coughs> excuse me, but I always return to base, which is small promises are easy to keep. And the, the, the majority of the market just want a small thing ticked off their to-do list. So most of the large, big offers with, there was another there was a dude we were talking about before who released a purple book and it had guarantees and all these ideas with it. Most of the offers got really big and really big promises and really big guarantees around it. And it tanked their ultimate performance because everybody was in an arms race to make bigger and bigger offers. And my experience is going the other way. Make very small offers that are very easy to fulfill because if they're easy to fulfill and create, they're easy to sell. So if they're easy to fulfill and create, they're, they're clear and kind to understand. And so they're easy to sell and things that are easy to sell are easy to buy. So I've found going the other way with making small offers, with, which are condensed and that the deliverables are compact is the most efficient piece. Because people, the other factor is that people with, um, people with time don't have any money and people with no time, generally have money. So they don't want a 10-week course. They don't want something to log into and watch videos. They just want the thing done. So in many cases, the, the, the evolution of an offer for me when I'm consulting with a client is that how can we condense the delivery to that? Can we deliver this 10-week course in two two-hour workshops? Can we deliver this, you know, the, the, the first promise in your year-long mastermind in a weekend? Right? Rather than helping someone get to 20K a month in a year, can we get them 20K this month in two days? So condensing and making the promises small, so there was a natural tension to, to show that people wanted to, to continue on and do, and do the thing. And that means that your marketing is more efficient, your sales is more efficient, because you're making smaller promises and they're, they're easier to... If something's easier to sell and deliver, then it's easier to buy. When I was running my offer, we split tested two. One was get two thirty k a month, and the other one was add twenty k a month. And the add twenty k a month actually performed better. I think maybe it's because of what you talked about. It's because it's smaller. It's it seems more tangible. It's almost like you can touch it more. Yeah, I've got some wonderful clients in the UK that work with in-person personal trainers, and they tested you know the messaging between. 10,000 pounds a month to 5,000, you know, and if you're the average personal trainer who's on two to three grand a month, um, then 5,000 feels great. Uh, 10,000 doesn't feel achievable. This, this has been a great podcast. Marcus, we're going to have to leave in like a few minutes. You got a question before we leave? I think I'm good. I, I like to, I think the biggest takeaway for me and, and maybe JK could agree, maybe the audience will agree. And I wrote it down is pointing out liabilities in somebody's life and then nurturing and changing that into assets. I feel like that's kind of, that was my big golden nugget here. Cause I think that can apply to so many different offers for context. I have a marketing agency 
you know, we work with consultants, coaches, et cetera. Um, and I think that's something we can use for clients is pointing out the target audience's liabilities, like in, in the like St. Cash brand, pointing out somebody's audience that's sitting there. They probably think it's a dead audience because their reels are getting like 300 views a day and they're like, this audience is dead. But if you could teach them how to turn that quote unquote dead audience into an asset, uh, you got a really good selling offer. So that was my, that was my golden nugget. That's, that's huge because, you know, I've worked with a lot of consultants who are, you know, maybe delivering workshops inside, um, you know, inside corporates, for example. So they had this beautiful workshop and the slides to do it. And I pointed it out and said, that workshop could be turned into a course and you could sell that on autopilot. And they're like, really? But it's just sitting on my hard drive. So when you start getting the pointing finger out and pointing at the things in people's business and their lives that they believe is just dormant sitting there, you know, and it's got that, as JK said, that potential energy. If you start pointing at those things and using the old pointing finger and, and going in there and saying, I can help you turn that into something, you become the magician because you're turning something that's negative into a positive. And, and when you start to do that in the, and, and, and start to point at things tangible, they don't need to be big and huge. They just need to be a priority for the person. So when you, when you, when you, if you're creative and you look for the liabilities and you have empathy in, in terms of your audience, you can find things that they can use all the time that you can help turn them into something, turn them into money, turn them into status, turn them into, you know, pieces. This is what people do with short form reels. You've got these big fucking long videos, so I'm going to give you 15 little small things. I'm going to turn the big thing into a small thing. So it's just pointing out the liabilities, finding them, being creative with them. And as soon as you start to point them in and say you can turn them into something, people buy. I think that was a great way to end it. James, where can people find you and uh, what should people know about you? Uh, go to swipemymarketing.com, um, give away a load of stuff. I give away most things and then I make you lots of offers every single day. Uh, I send lots of emails. So if you don't like that, just join and unsubscribe when you get, get sick of me. Um, follow along. I, I, I do most of my stuff in private, so on my email list and in my community. But um, love for the people to follow along and if you want to troll me on Facebook and Instagram and boost my pathetic Twitter account, then um, go go for it. I'll throw you a follow. All I'll right. You up. All right, Don. That's the part. Thanks no, for coming.